All right, get your Bibles out if you would. Daniel chapter 6 is where we are this morning. Daniel's in the Old Testament, um, in the beginning part of your Bible. If you get to the middle part, it's Psalms. Keep going a little bit further to the right, you'll find it, Daniel. Um, we've been doing this series out of the book of Daniel. Next week is going to be really fun because we're going to go through chapters 7 through 12, which were all the visions that Daniel saw about the end times. And so we're going to talk about some of that in some of the book of Revelation in regards to what all uh, those, those visions that God gave him. But this morning we're in Daniel chapter 6, and we're doing this series that we're calling Living in Exile. And we've been going just kind of chapter by chapter through the book of Daniel. And if you miss any of the other messages, let me encourage you to go online because I think this is really important. It's really interesting reading the book of Daniel while going through what we're going through here as a nation. Because I've said this over the past several weeks that we're living in a brand new cultural moment uh, for all of us here in the United States. There's been a radical shift underneath our feet in regard to this, the spiritual situation for our nation. And, and so much so that sociologists are calling this now a post-Christian society. And that doesn't mean that there are no longer Christians in America. It doesn't mean that um, the churches are irrelevant in America. That's not what it means. What it means is that the secularization of the Western culture as a whole is almost um, complete. What happened many decades ago in the, in the academic world has now moved fully into the popular level. And so for the average 13-year-old who's grown up on Xbox and Star Wars and Pokemon Go, for that 13-year-old, they're living in a culture where they just don't have the cultural help to help them discover God. If you can think back maybe on your own childhood, or if you think back with your parents or your grandparents, everywhere you went, there were, it seems like there were churches on every corner, and there were advertisements, and people talked about God. God was in school and, um, and at sporting events. Well, now the millennials are being raised without any of that cultural support, and so as a result, it's like God won't even come in to their thinking process and their choices, which means... If you're a Christian today, you've now, you're now in the vast minority. For the very first time in American history, if you're a Christian, you're in the minority. So the question we've been talking about is then, okay, so what does this mean for us? How then do we live as Christians in a post-Christian world? What does this look like? This is not a, a question that your parents or your grandparents had to contend with, um, but it is a question for our generation. But the interesting thing is, that people all over the world throughout time have had to answer this question. It's just now our turn here in the United States. We're the ones that have to answer this question. So the book of Daniel is a great book about how to do this, how to live in a culture where you're living in exile, where the dominant culture is different than your spiritual beliefs. Because the book of Daniel starts back in 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, came and, and um, completely destroyed the nation of Israel and besieged the capital city of Jerusalem. And Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, he quickly changed his allegiances to Nebuchadnezzar in hopes that the city of Jerusalem wouldn't be destroyed. And part of that agreement meant that he had to give tre treasury, tribute from the treasury of Jerusalem. He had to give him all this money. As well, he had to hand over a bunch of the nobility and the royal family as hostages. Included in that list of hostages was a guy by the name of Daniel. He would have been about 16 years old when he was sent off to this hostile and evil nation of Babylon. And very quickly, he put him into this three-year program that was intended to really to brainwash him to change all sense of past history and, and culture and family and spiritual beliefs. But the interesting thing about the book of Daniel is that it shows us how Daniel was not just able to survive, but actually how he was able to thrive as an exile, as a minority in this very hostile and evil culture of Babylon, how he was able to create a whole new way of living that was still true to his core, true to his spiritual beliefs. And so over the past several weeks, we've looked at how he won the battle for his identity. When culture even changed his name, they 
specifically changed his name so that he wouldn't even have any reference to the past. But he won this, this battle for his identity. And not only that, but he was able to not give in to the cultural stream that was heading away from God. And as a result, not only did he influence an entire empire, but he influenced the most powerful man in the world at that time, King Nebuchadnezzar. Which brings us now to Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Let me give you a backdrop to this, because from chapter 1 to chapter 6, we just jumped um, about 60 years. And so Daniel's no longer a teenager like he was in chapter 1. Now he's almost 80 years old. And so he's progressed a lot, and he's seen a lot of different things. And at this point in in Daniel chapter 6... The Babylonian Empire has been conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire, and Darius is now the new king on the throne. This is now the the largest empire that's ever been on the face of the earth, and its expanse, it almost goes globally, completely around the world. And so Darius, he appoints these satraps, or these governors, to help him rule throughout this vast empire. Verse 2, with three administrators over these satraps, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel was so so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so here's Daniel. He's almost 80 years old, and not only has he lived through two kingdoms and probably three or four kings, but he's still at it. And he's doing his job now even better than any other time in his life. And so the new king, he sees this, and he sees what's going on in Daniel's life, and he wants Daniel now to run the whole kingdom. Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And so he's surrounded with these men who are jealous of him. And they're jealous because here's someone who's not even a Persian. He's not a part of this native nation. He's an exile into it. He's an outcast. But yet the king wants to promote him to the number two position in the entire empire. And so they come up with this devious plan to try to entrap Daniel. Verse 6. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and the governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes of the Persians which cannot be repealed. So Darius put the decree in writing. In other words, these jealous men, they appeal to the king's vanity. And they said, all of us, we have all agreed this is the way it is. If you remember chapter 3 of Daniel, kind of sounds familiar to what they did with King Nebuchadnezzar. This jealousy was running rampant, obviously, in this kingdom. But this is a death sentence for Daniel. For Daniel, this is going to mean his life if he actually follows through with it. But in spite of that, watch what happens. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. I love this. Because in spite of this decree, in spite of this impending death sentence, Daniel just basically ignores it and goes straight home and begins to pray in front of that open window that faced Jerusalem. Now, odds are the reason why he was doing this is actually from what it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Look what it says. It says, when the heavens are shut up, And there is no rain because the people have sinned against you. And when they pray towards this place, that is Jerusalem, 
and give praise to your name and turn from their sins because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servant, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. Now, try to put yourself in Daniel's shoes. Because try to imagine reading this in the 6th century B.C. as an exile into this very hostile and foreign country that he was exiled to. This is where he was sent as, as a teenager. And imagine reading this and realizing, I am here. God's judgment has come because of what my fathers and my forefathers have done. They've sinned against God. They turned away from God. And I'm the one that has to pay for it. I was a hostage. I was, I was sent into this foreign nation as a teenager. Can you imagine reading this? But yet in this, it's kind of interesting because you, you can see how he took it seriously. If you look at all of Daniel's life, he was very serious about prayer and his relationship with God. This is probably the text that shaped his own personal daily rhythm of prayer where he prayed three times a day. But I want you to notice something from this text. Because nowhere in this text is there a command from God that says, Thou shalt pray in front of an open window that faces Jerusalem, and thou shalt do this three times a day. It says that nowhere in the Scripture, and actually nowhere in the Old Testament, does it command us to do this. But yet, this is what Daniel was doing. In other words, this was just part of his personal devotional life with God. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was faced with a, a, a situation of compromise where they were trying to get him to do something and he refuses to commit that sin of compromise. Well, here in Daniel chapter 6, it's another situation of compromise. But in this situation, it wasn't a sin to commit something. It was about trying to omit it. In Daniel chapter 1, it's something committing that he refused to do. Now, this is something about uh, omitting something that was important for his life. And you think about it, in this situation, this decree that Darius sent out, I mean, it would have been so easy for Daniel just to take a month off. That's all it says. For 30 days, they're not so supposed to pray. And so I'm thinking about Daniel. I mean, dude, you're 80 years old. You've been doing this. You've been faithful. Everybody knows you're a good, but just take the month off. They're not asking you to murder somebody. They're not asking you to blaspheme God. They're just saying, just take the month off of prayer and just and go on. Save your life here. Or if you don't want to take the month off of prayer, well, then don't pray by the window. <laughs> I mean, don't do it in public. I mean, pray in your prayer closet. Just pray inside of your head. Pray in secret. It's no big deal. Just do this for 30 days. It's no big deal. But for Daniel, it was a big deal. And for him, it was worth dying for. It was worth giving his life for to live his faith out in public. Not just in private, but to live his faith out there for all to see. It was worth dying for. And watch what happens. Verse 11. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. The king's upset. The king's mad. He realizes that he's been set up. This man that he honors, this man who he appreciates, the man that he's going to put right next beside him, this number two in position in, in his entire kingdom, he realizes he's been set up by these men. Verse 15. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be charged. They saw that he was favoring Daniel, that King Darius was trying to find an escape clause in this decree, and they said, There is none. 
This is the mandate that you set in motion. There's no way out. Verse 16, so the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Now, back then, it was a cultural thing for kings. It was one of the sports that they would do is to go out and hunt lions. And then they would collect these lions for the purpose of using them in public execution, specifically to those who are traitors to the throne. And they would make a, sp a public spectacle of this to try to ward off all would-be enemies to the throne. Verse 16, the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. It's interesting because Darius knows about Daniel's faith. The king knew about Daniel's faith. Daniel's faith was not a secret. Verse 17, a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and the rings of the nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to the palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? It must have been the longest silence after asking that question. And Daniel answered, may the king live forever. Imagine being in Darius' place and hearing an actual human voice come out of this den of lions. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave the orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he trusted in his God. Now, for those of you who are a stickler with justice, you may be asking, well, what about the law? He broke the law. Doesn't he still need to be executed according to the law? Well, it's kind of an interesting kind of make, let me just make a little side comment here because there's an ancient custom that was called innocence by ordeal. And in that culture, what they would do if a person's, a defendant's guilt or innocent was in question, they would put them through a test to try to figure out if they were actually innocent or guilty. So a test using fire, we saw that one back in Daniel chapter 3, a test using poison, a test using um, some sort of water situation, for instance, where they would take them out into a raging river and, and um, dump them in the river. And if they were able to somehow survive that raging winter, a river that they were, they were innocent, and if they died in that, well, then of course they were guilty. And then we also see it here. Another test was a lion's den, like we see here in this chapter. How many are thankful that our justice system is a little bit different today? <laughs> so for Daniel to have survived the lion's den, this would have been a sign to the people of that culture that the gods had cleared Daniel's name. He's not guilty. He's innocent. And that's why they were able to move forward. Verse 24, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Now notice the end of the story. This is a guy who's been exiled. He's been held as a hostage in this foreign and evil nation for basically his entire life. And as a result of him being steady and consistent with his faith, not only did he influence a previous king, Nebuchadnezzar, which we've seen in the past, this new king on the throne, the same thing happens. And Darius writes this letter to the entire, entire empire, which goes all across the world, saying that everyone must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. 
It's, it's an amazing thing when you think about it, when you try to put this into our culture today. Now, one of the things I think is interesting about this verse, you're going to have to look at your footnote, but look at verse 28. It says, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. If you have a study Bible, you're going to see a little footnote right next to those words, the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And the reason why most Bibles have a little footnote here is because scholars believe that the correct translation is this, Darius that is the reign of Cyrus. In other words, Darius is another name for Cyrus. Now, I'm sure you're looking at me thinking, well, what does that mean? What does that have to do with anything other than for those who like to study stuff? Well, here, here's why it's so interesting, because I need to take you to another passage. Second Chronicles 36, verse 22 says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, you following me here, here's Daniel chapter 6. It says Darius is writing this letter, and his, another name for Darius is Cyrus. Now we see Cyrus writing another letter in Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 22. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, scholars believe this is the exact same king in the exact same year that wrote this letter to his empire. And he writes this letter telling them to do this. Look at this. Verse 22, in the first year of King Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved on the heart of Cyrus, or Darius, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. We just saw the reason why he was doing this was because of what had happened with Daniel in the lion's end. Verse 23, this is what Cyrus, or Darius, king of Persia, says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at, in, at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go, and may the Lord their God be with you. Now, it, you, you need to put yourself in this position, what's going on, why this is such an, an incredible thing here, because Daniel's influence was so great, and actually there are others like him that were happening. You can read in other passages when you look at Esther and Nehemiah and Ezra. There are other people that God had in place in this nation. But Daniel's influence was so great that he sends, that Darius sends this letter. Darius or Cyrus, they send, he sends this letter across the entire empire telling them that, that there is only one true God. That he saw it. This God saved Daniel. And you need to accept him. You need to revere him. You need to fear him. But not only that, you see what he also said? He said, all you Hebrews who have been in exile into this empire, you can go back. You can go back to your homeland and you can rebuild your temple and I'll provide the money for it. You can rebuild your temple. You can rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You can rebuild your nation. It's unheard of. A conquered people who have been hostage for 70 years, now all of a sudden because of the influence of just a handful of people, now he's saying, you can go back. All the rest of you people are still hostages, but the Hebrews, you can go back and establish your nation. And you'll see this followed out if you read the book of Nehemiah and the building of the wall and Ezra, the rebuilding of the temple. This actually does happen. I mean, talk about having a creative influence in a culture where you've been exiled to. This is what we're talking about throughout this, this whole series. We've been talking about this issue of influence. And when you think about influence, influence has both a positive and has a negative side to it. On the negative side, the question is always, how do we keep from being influenced by Babylon? That was the issue of Daniel. How is he going to keep from being influenced in this evil, hostile culture that has changed his name? How is he going to keep his identity and not succumb to these powers that are trying to force him to be, to be different? It's our question as well. As the culture around us is changing so quickly, as the school systems are changing so quickly in how they deal with our children, how do you keep from being influenced by the prevailing thought that's completely godless and fully humanistic? How do we keep from being influenced? That's one of the questions, and we spent a lot of time in this series talking about that. But on the other side is the positive aspect of influence, and that is how do we actually exert 
influence in Babylon. As Daniel did, he exerted influence to the point that he had all this favor that was going, that was going on. So how do we actually do that? You and me, how do we exert influence in the culture in which we live, in our workplaces, in our city, here in this area? How do we actually create influence? Now, let me just make a little side comment here because it's important for you to know that there's a difference between power and influence. So many times where I think we tend to look for power or positions of power in order to actually exert influence. But there's a difference between power and influence. Power is top down. It's based on your position. And power really is the ability to coerce people to do something that they don't want to do. That's the essence of what power is. Influence is different. Influence is center out. Power is top down. Influence is center out. And influence is not based upon position. It's not based upon what rank or role you play in your, in your workforce or in, your, in the city or in the government or anything like that. Because it's not based upon position. It's centered out. And it's not the ability to co- coerce, but it's the ability to convince people to do something so that when they choose to do it themselves, they're doing in and of their own free will. That's influence. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to be influencers. We're not called to take over, to take control, to use power and try to coerce people. We're called to be influencers. Now, I think it's really important that you know that that most of us probably will not by ourselves be able to influence a culture as a whole. I think that's important for us to understand. That individually, you may not be able to influence culture as a whole, but we all have a reach to our lives. You have a reach to your life. There's a sphere of influence that you can influence in a positive way to your family members, to your coworkers, to your classmates, to your neighbors. And when you think about it, most of us, that sphere of influence you know, it's not extraordinary. It's not hugely large. That sphere of influence tends to be pretty small. But for some of you, God has given you a greater reach. That there is a call of God on your life to be able to reach beyond what most of us are able to do. There's an actual call of God for you to reach beyond that, for your influence to go beyond what is normal. And so, which means some of you, you need to go get your law degree and come back and become the mayor of Austin. Some of you, you need to go get your doctorate degree and become the head of the philosophy department down at UT. Some of you, you need to go and write the next best-selling novel in the nation. Some of you need to become the next Beyonce or or the next Bono or or the next Billy Graham because there's a call of God on your life that's that's crazy big. And the, the difficult thing for those of you that have that type of call, it's easy just to kind of think, oh, this is too big. This is too crazy. I could never do that. And I just want to tell you as, as your pastor and as a church, I want to just be your cheerleader and say, go for it. Because there are Daniels. There are the Shadrachs, the Meshachs, and the Abednegoes. There are the Esters that God places within a culture. Don't, don't, be, don't be afraid. Don't, don't think less of that. You need to go for it because God will pick some of you and there's a reach that's greater to your life and you need to use it. The rest of us, then we need to leverage our spheres of influence and the reach that God has given us, that we need to work together to show the love of God and the reality of God working in our lives so that it actually does affect the Lake Travis area and the the greater Austin region. We need to be able to work together to be able to do that, not in some sort of power sort of way, but as people who influence, which means we have to be able to grow in influence. I have to grow in influence. You have to grow in influence. So how do we do this? I think when you look at Daniel's life, he gives us some pretty interesting things of how we can actually grow in influence. And number one, we see that growth, that growth of influence happened through excellence in Daniel's life. Through excellence. Look again, Daniel 6, verse 3. It says, Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. If you're taking notes, underline the words exceptional qualities. Exceptional qualities means his work ethic, his skill, his ability to do the job well. We actually see this early on in Daniel's life that he got it. 
Even as a teenager, he realized that he just needed to be excellent. Look again in Daniel 1 verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Now think about that. Because the reason why Daniel rose in influence into that empire wasn't just because of God's favor, but it was also because he was excellent at his job. He worked harder than anybody else in the kingdom. If we're going to influence others, you're going to have to be really, really, really good at what you do. Just be really, really good at what you do. Whether it's raising kids or being a high school English teacher or writing poetry or practicing medicine or practicing law. Just be really, really good at it. You have to become a craftsman. You have to become a maestro. You have to be a scholar at what you do. You just need to be really, really good at what you do. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Whatever, whatever that is. Just do it with all your might. Whether that's in your freshman English algebra class, whether it's bagging groceries or taking care of the, of the, uh, of the elderly, whatever it is, just do it really, really good. Do it with all your might. In other words, be so good that people can't ignore you. Just be so good. Be better than everybody else. Just work harder than everybody else. And then number two, we grow an in influence through depth of character. Through depth of character, look again in Daniel 6, verse 4. At this, the administrators and the sad traps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Underline that last, those last words, neither corrupt nor negligent. I love that because... Some people, they're not corrupt, but they're still negligent. You know what I'm talking about? Now, some people are not corrupt. They're, they're, just, they're just negligent. They're late for everything. They're irresponsible. They drop the ball all the time. And then others, they're on it. I mean, they're 10 minutes early. They always have their Excel spreadsheets there for every single meeting they go to. I mean, they're on it, but yet they're still kind of a little seedy. They're, they're, still, they're still a little bit disreputable dis, 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 here. But Daniel, he was neither corrupt, nor was he negligent. I want you to think about this, because imagine if the CIA or the FBI or TMZ were to have to vet you and to scrutinize every aspect of your life. What would they find? What would your lifestyle, what would your character reveal? Because this is what we're talking about here. If you want to influence culture, it's not about being perfect. But in addition to being excellent in your vocation, you need to be able to back that up with a, lie, a life that makes people stop and pay attention. Because at the end of the day, character is destiny. Come on, listen to me. At the end of the day, character is destiny. Your character is going to catch up with you at some point. And so if there's a gap between your public life and your private life, if there's a gap between your vocation, your excellence in your vocation and how you are in your character, it's only a matter of time until it's going to catch up with you and it's going to be exposed. Character is destiny. Your character is your destiny. David Brooks, in his book, The Road to Character, he says it this way. He says, every great society in history, including early America, was built around the pursuit of virtue and not happiness. Isn't that interesting? So many people think that American culture was built around the pursuit of happiness. It's actually built around the pursuit of virtue. That every society was built that way and had some sort of moral or spiritual authority, or they were built around some sort of moral or spiritual compass. The U.S. was that way. But in the U.S., we've lost that over the last half century. We no longer have a strategy to build character. Think about that. For those of you old enough, you remember a time and a day in schools where character was part of the curriculum, where it was taught how to not lie, but to be able to tell the truth, where your principal spanked you. I'm not saying that was good or bad, but my elementary principal was 6'10", and his paddle was enormous. But there was a day and age that wasn't just about academics, but we're trying to deal with character in people's life. 
He says this, unless if you are Aristotle, most of us can't come up with one. That is, we can't come up with a character from scratch by the time we're 16. So all of this leads to an amoral society. And his thing is, that's what we've become. We have become an amoral society. Now, when you think about that, that's really interesting. Because that means that character is going to stick out way more than it ever did. People are going to notice character way more now than they did in your, your, your parents' generation, your grandparents' generation, when character was already high. But now in this amoral society that's growing and growing and growing in that way, your character is going to stick out more than ever before, which means this, be like Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thought? Just be like Jesus. Be a man or a woman of integrity. Be a man or a woman of humility. Be a man or a woman of honesty. Put the needs of others before yourself. Be kind. Be faithful. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't be flaky. <laughs> Don't be flaky. Show up time. Show up on time. Go above and beyond what's expected of you. This is what Daniel did, and his influence just kept increasing and increasing and increasing. And then number three, we grow in influence through faithfulness. We grow in influence through faithfulness. Now, I already said that Daniel, he was around 80 years old when we're reading about him in Daniel chapter 6. He had lived through the rise and fall of two empires and at least three or four kings. In other words, if you think about it in your own, your own world, you've lived through the acquisition and the merger of, of two or three different companies that have taken over, and, and you've had three or four different bosses over your life during that time. But for Daniel, even all that transition, he's still at it. He's still faithful. He's still working really, really hard. Listen, if you want your influence to grow in this city, if you want your influence to grow in your family, if you want your influence to grow in your workplace, you've got to be faithful over the long haul. There's got to be a stick to itiveness. There's a, you know, there's, in, I, several years ago, I went to the, the island nations of Vanuatu. And they're over there in Fiji and that, that, that sort of area. And, and they speak a pidgin English. And there's only about, 30, they, it's in English, but they only have about 300 words in their language vocabulary. And so it's interesting. I had to be interpreted in everything I did. And so you could understand the words, but they, they had to use a lot more words than I would have to use. And so there's a word that always, that's always stuck out to me, how they would say it. So if I, if I would say integrity, they didn't have a one word that said integrity. They would have to say, long time stand up tall. And I think about that because that's what we're called to, folks. Not for a short period of time standing up tall. Not for a short period of time where you have integrity. But long time stand up tall. And I think this generation, we struggle with this because we've grown up with the microwave. We, we, we've, we've grown up with email. We, we've grown up with TV on demand and, Amer and, and Amazon Prime. This is what the generation that is, gr is growing up on, which means there's no delayed gratification. Everything's instant. Everything's immediate. And so we've gotten accustomed to this. But let me, let me tell you something. Technology will never be able to speed up your relationships. Technology is never going to be able to, to speed up a healthy marriage. Technology is never going to speed up your success at parenting. Don't you wish that was the case? <laughs> Technology is not going to do that for you. Technology is not going to speed up your legacy or your character. These take decades and may even take a lifetime. Hebrews 6 verse 12 says, Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. If you're taking notes, underline the word faith. That word faith in the original language means faithfulness. In other words, to have faith is to be faithful. Let me say it again. To have faith means to be faithful. Faithful to your God, faithful to your community, faithful to your spouse, faithful to your family, faithful to the call of God that's on your life. Never underestimate the power of faithfulness over a lifetime. Influence increases. The more you long time stand up tall, influence increases. The more you stand in the midst of transitions and things that, fluc that fluctuate around you, the more influence you have. Now, let me make just one more point from this chapter here. Because this whole chapter is about a type of influence. There's always that we can influence around us. But Daniel chapter 6 is about a specific type of influence. And that is the ability to witness. 
to be a witness for your faith. Daniel was a witness of the one true God right there in the thick of Babylon, right there in the middle of that Medo-Persian empire that was so hostile and corrupt, that was completely evil and completely devoid of God. He was a witness of the one true God. And you know what the interesting thing is? Everybody knew it. Everybody knew that Daniel was a worshiper of God. The king knew, his co-workers knew, his neighbors knew. Everyone knew that he was a witness of God, not just in private, but in public. He was out there with his faith. Everybody knew that he was a man of God. Let me ask you a question here this morning. What about you? What would people say about your life? Could the same thing be said about you? I mean, what would your friends say about you? What would your co-workers, your classmates, what would they say about you? What would the parents on your kids' sports team say about you? What would your neighbors say about you? Do people know you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Even if somebody that's in your sphere of influence, even if they, they were, had questions about God, had questions about Christian, had questions about Jesus, in this month of December where it's as, it's, it's as easy as ever to talk about God, would those people in your sphere of influence even know that they could go to you to ask the question? Do people see you as a follower of Jesus? I feel like we're a generation that's lost the passion to tell people about Jesus. And I, I get it. I, under, I understand it because I think so many of us are turned off by evangelism done wrong. You know, the turn and burn and bumper stickers on our vehicle that we put on there, the door-to-door -door evangelism, the, the sandwich signs and bullhorn with the guy in the corner yelling and screaming that everybody's going to hell. I mean, I get it. I mean, I, I get it that we're so upset and we're just turned off by witnessing being done poorly, but we can't just flush the baby out with the, the bathwater because being a witness, telling people about Jesus is all about being a follower of Jesus. You cannot separate the two. Jesus said, go out and be a witness. That, that whole example is you're put up on stage, you're in a court of law, and when somebody asks you a question in that court of law, just share what you know. Just share what you've seen. Just share what you've experienced. That's what it means. You don't have to have all the theological answers. You don't have to have all the Bible scriptures. Just simply be a witness. What you've seen, what you've heard, what you've experienced, just share that. This is what we're called to. I was, I was reading this blog from a millennial girl here this past week that says a lot about this. Why don't you listen to how she describes this? She says, as, as we establish ourselves firmly in the 21st century, tent revivals and traveling evangelists have become things of the past, taught in history classes and portrayed in movies. Evangelism is often presented as an old-school, out-of-style idea with little value or relevance in our fast-paced urban world. The reality is that social media platforms and trendy wall plaques are inundated with quotes preaching the idea of easy evangelism. If we just live good enough lives... We can forego the conversation entirely, and people all around us will almost magically come to know Jesus through our good actions and selfless character. The style of evangelism is becoming more and more prevalent in a culture constantly looking for the fast track and simple fix. But if we believe God has called us to preach the gospel to all nations and all people, we must call the next generation back to a commitment to evangelism. Did you hear what she said? This is a millennial. And she's saying, I, I get it why the older generation struggles with this, because there's so many things that are just relics and just don't work in our culture anymore. But if you think that people are going to know that you're a follower of Jesus just because you're a good person, listen to what this millennial says. She said, you're missing it. Because we have to, with our mouth, actually share. We have to say things to people around us to let them know that we actually are followers of Jesus. We've got to pass this on, folks. We've got to pass it on to our kids. They're not going to get it in school. They're not going to get it from their friends. We've got to pass it on to them. We've got to pass it on to our neighbors, our, our classmates. We've got to pass it on to our coworkers. We've got to pass it on to the city. Because if we don't, then the church in the city dies. It's one generation from dying. You know, all you have to do is drive around the country and see all of these churches that are fully empty. But you know else what's going on? You know what's happening to these churches that are empty? 
they're being bought up by those who follow Islam. There's a strategy, and it's a great strategy because Christians aren't doing anything about it. They're just going into cities where there's empty churches, and they buy them up, and they and they establish that right there in that city. It's it's all around us, and so if we don't pass this on. It just, it dies out amongst us. Let me remind you, this gospel that we're talking about is good news, folks. Yeah. This is, this is, it's good news. This is good news that we have to share. We're, we're not talking about chopped liver and sauerkraut that's sour but somehow good for you. <laughs> that's not what you're trying to influence people with. This is good. This is really, really good stuff that we have to share. Because let me remind you, there's nothing like hearing the voice of God. There's nothing like knowing that God has a call on your life. There's a purpose to your life, that you're not an accident, that he directs your steps and he has a purpose for what you're going through. There's nothing like having the comfort of God come around you in the midst of loss, in the midst of questions, and when you lose your job. There's nothing like having the Holy Spirit minister to you in those different times. There's nothing like it, folks. And maybe you've gotten accustomed to it. I don't know. But statistics are saying that we're just not passing it on. We're not sharing. We're not, we're not standing up and saying, you know, I, I am a follower of Jesus. Let me just say something that's kind of interesting. Because now, if you're a Christian, you're in the minority. Those of you who grew up in the 60s and 70s that kind of pride yourself on being a rebel, welcome back. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a rebel. And so stand out. Just stand out again in your faith. And yes, this is scary to do in exile. When you think about it, it's scary to swim upstream. It's scary to go against the flow. It's scary to live in a culture where Christianity has been banned from our schools, but yet Islam is taught now in our schools. It's scary to do this in a culture where prayer rugs are allowed in schools and businesses and airports and even, have, even are, are, are mandated at some places. It's scary to do this in this culture. It's scary to go up, up against stream where employers are being sued because Muslims feel like if their jobs are, are in conflict with Sharia law, they'll just sue the employer. It's scary to go against the flow nowadays. Thankfully, we don't have to deal with lion's dens right now. I'm grateful for that. But let me just say, social pressure can be as scary. There's so much pressure with the social pressure just, just to give in to the secular culture, just to hide, just to be silent. The social pressure to do this is so incredibly strong. But let me remind you again, this is good news that you have to share. It is what people are looking for. This is what people are longing for. You have good news. Don't be ashamed of that. Stand up like Daniel did when it would have been easy for him just to do things in secret. Take your private into the public. Our job as a creative minority while living in exile is to be known as followers of Jesus Christ, just like Daniel was, to the point that he was willing to give his life for it. And I ask you just to close your eyes here this morning as we're going to get ready to finish here. Father, I pray for every one of us in this, this, new, uh, this new day, this, this new world that we're living in is changing so incredibly fast, and it feels like we're just, we're behind, and we're, we're, we're still living in the past and not seeing what's happening in culture that's right in front of us, and we're still expecting to be able to do what we've always done, and we're still expecting that that this culture that we live in is Christian, that everybody around us is Christian. Lord, I pray for every one of us here this week as we go into our schools, as we go into our workplaces, as we're in the grocery stores and we're shopping. Lord, would you put just a whole new view of people in our life? That, Father, we would see people differently. And that, Lord we would be those that just like Daniel wouldn't just, just practice this in private behind closed doors on a Sunday morning, but that we would take this public, that we would look and be able to respond to opportunities just to witness, to share what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've experienced. That, that God, that we would not be afraid and we would not succumb to the, to the cultural pressures just to be silent, to be quiet that people don't want to know. Lord, I pray that you would remind us 
of how it is so good to taste and see your goodness, how there's nothing, there's nothing like it, and there's nothing like having you in our life. So, Father, I pray for every person here this morning. And Father, this week, and especially in this Christmas season where we are intentionally remembering you coming here, Emmanuel, God being with us, the God that, that you being with us hasn't changed because the baby grew up, <laughs> but that we can live and know your presence every day of our life, that we can celebrate that, that we can pass that on. And so, Lord, I pray for every parent here this morning, that they would pass that on intentionally to their kids, that they would train up their kids in the way they should go, that their kids would know the truth, that they would know what your word says in the midst of all the pressure and things that are being taught in schools, that as parents, Lord, that we would pass this on, that in our workplaces and in our classrooms and in our neighborhoods, Lord, that we would not just keep this private any longer, but that we would actually become very public with it. That God, as we learned from Daniel here this morning, that even in the cost of reputation, or the cost of embarrassment, or the cost of loss, even to life, that this is a big deal, that we can't just be private about it, that we have to take it out, we have to let it out there. We're gonna take communion here this morning and I'm reminded that when you think about it throughout Scripture, God gives us ways to take something that is so inside and make it public. Water baptism is that when you think about it. Announcing to the world, yeah, I really am a follower of Jesus Christ. Communion is that same sort of way where Jesus gives us a question and says, I have given you my life. Will you now give me your life? The Bible says on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this. Every time you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, the Bible says that he took up the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is a whole new way where you can know me. It's a whole new, he calls it a covenant. It's a new covenant that we have now access to God the Father. And so I want to encourage you here this morning. It's fully Christmas season, whether you're ready or not. Christmas is about us celebrating God coming to us in the messiness in that stable, in the parts that we don't want him to see, he comes right in into our lives. He does that. And he says, I want to do that. But then there's always a response. I've given you my life, Jesus said. Will you now give me your life? And so as you take communion here this morning, I want you to be able to answer that for yourself. The Bible says that if we'll confess that Jesus is Lord with our mouth, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not something your parents do or your grandparents do. It's not something just because you come to church that happens. You have to be able to acknowledge, ask Jesus to come. And then use this then as your outer expression and being able to declare that, yeah, Jesus, I want you in my life. In spite of what's happening around the world, in spite of what's happening in culture, I want you in my life. What's private in here, I want to make public. How we're going to do this, there's